ask MJ to marry me. A man has to put his wife before himself. Can you do that, Peter? Yeah, I think I can. We have some new information. This is your uncle's actual killer. We lost his trail two days ago. This man killed my uncle, and he's still out there. Everybody needs help sometimes, Peter. Even Spider-Man. Revenge is like a poison. It can take us over. Before you know it, it can turn you into something ugly. <gasps> the suit. Where'd this come from? The power. It feels good. But you lose yourself to it. Whoa! Spidey, love the new outfit! Remember Ben Parker? What does it matter to you anyway? Everything! Do you want to push me away? Why would I want to push you away? I love you. You knew this was coming, Pete. I didn't kill your father! forgive each other or everything we ever were will mean nothing i need your help i have to stop it this could be the end of spider-man Hey, Grace Church. Hope you guys are doing well. Uh, I am Stephen. I'm one of the pastors uh, here, uh, and we're so glad that you guys are joining us, whether you're in Avon or Braintree or online. Uh, we're thankful we are in the fourth week of a really fun series called At the Movies, where we've just been um, uh, using movie clips as analogies uh, for biblical truths. Uh, what we basically did at the beginning of the series was, as a pastoral staff, we sit down uh, we sat down and we wrote down um, some biblical truths that we wanted to communicate this summer. And then we said, okay, let's go find some fun movies, uh, some clips that we can use as teaching analogies instead of using like a, like a goofy story or something like that. And so we kind of said this would be a fun way uh, to get through the summer together um, as you guys are gearing up for school. So we're thankful you guys are here. I am a huge movie fan. Um, I actually have a degree in movies. Um, that's a real thing. I really do. Like, if you want to waste $100,000, come and talk to me, and I'll tell you all about it and how you can get a four-year degree in filmmaking. Uh, when I was in college, uh, I, I thought that I was going to spend my entire life um, writing movies. I wanted to be a screenwriter because ever since I could remember, I love to tell stories, and I, I, I still have books I wrote when I was in, like, first grade um, just because I'm a storyteller. And uh, as I began to study it in school, um, I, I developed a deeper appreciation for movies, but I felt like God was stirring my heart to still be a storyteller, but to use that as a preacher and to preach and share his stories rather than 
ones that I would write. And so uh, we're just thankful to be here and, uh, and love this series. It's a lot of fun. Um, we knew that we wanted to try to tie in some type of superhero movie, and we found a truth that we feel like ties it in uh, perfectly uh, with this movie. And um, what I, I love uh, superhero movies, maybe not as much as, as other people. Some are like fanatics. I know that there's some staff members here who will remain nameless, Joe and Bert, but they, uh, they have like, uh, like superhero garb all over their offices upstairs. I, I can't go that far because I'm a grown man, um, but uh, some of you really love superhero movies to that level. In fact, uh, it's tw- in 2018, the seven highest grossing movies of this year so far, six of them are superhero movies. Six out of seven are superhero movies. Uh, We love it because we love these stories of people with miraculous powers doing miraculous things and living these these special lives. And superhero movies kind of show this compelling life that if you want to have a special life, um, you've got to do miraculous, great things. You've got to accomplish something big. And and what I love about the Bible, God's story, is it kind of teaches the opposite. That as a Christ follower, the special thing has already been done for us when Jesus died on the cross thousands of years ago. And now because of that, we are compelled to do great things for God. Um, so we're going we're gonna to look at um, maybe the most familiar passage in the Old Testament, uh, David and Goliath. And we're going to look at a guy named David. We're going to look at two moments in his life and this inward battle that he struggles with and see how he dealt with that temptation in these two moments that, that were years apart from each other. And so we're going we're gonna to hop right in uh, to 1 Samuel 17, and I want to give you guys a little bit of context um, because we're kind of jumping right into the middle of Jewish history, um, and if you don't know what's going on, you can't appreciate the magnitude of everything that is taking place in this story. Um, So 1 Samuel 17, um, leading up to this, uh, God has rescued his people, um, the Jews or or the Israelites, which they are commonly called in the Old Testament. He's rescued his people out of slavery, and that's the book of Exodus. And then then they wander around the desert for a little while, and then he finally brings them to to the promised land. And that's the very beginning of of the book of Joshua. Um, And he sets up this Jewish law, and he says, I'm giving you this land, live here, and and do these things to live a holy life. And so we know, like the ten most popular are the ten commandments, right? But but all of Leviticus is kind of these Jewish laws that, that God has uh, for, for his people to live in order to live a holy life, do these things. And that's the old covenant. Since then, Jesus came, and now we live under the new covenant. So we read the Old Testament with a different lens. Um, but after that moment, God sets up the land, and he sets up his people. And then the rest of the Old Testament is God speaking to his people in different ways. And the three ways he does that are judges, kings, and prophets. And so as you're reading throughout the Old Testament, you'll see that it's the same voice of God but he communicates in different ways. And so the book of Judges, uh, he uses judges, uh, not like literal judges in a black robe, but um, basically men and women of God to, uh, to declare God's truth to his people. So like Samson, uh, Deborah, it, it, like some of, those are some of the popular ones, but there's a whole book of it. And then we get to 1 Samuel, and 1 and 2 Samuel are actually written at the same time. Um, and that is the book that transitions from God's people um, being, being spoken to by judges to now they've established a kingship, and it follows the first two kings of Israel. So that's what we're jumping into, is David will eventually 
become the second king of Israel. Right now, Saul is king, and he's a horrible king. Uh, he's selfish. Uh, he lacks integrity. Um, when, when like his, like his cabinet would tell him he's doing something wrong, he would reject them because he was arrogant. And as you're reading it, you can tell he's probably not going to be king forever because God wouldn't allow that kind of leadership over his people at this stage. Um, and then this story comes, 1 Samuel 17, uh, David and Goliath, which is so popular that, that even if you've never been in church before, you've probably heard that expression used, David and Goliath, because it's like the true underdog story. Um, so we're going to start in verse 32, and I'm, I'm going to kind of jump around a little bit because there's so much content and substance that I'm going to paraphrase certain parts and then read certain parts and then paraphrase. So you've got, uh, you've got David, who's, who's the hero, um, and you've got Goliath. And Goliath is described in 1 Samuel as being nine feet tall, and that's not a figurative number. He's literally nine feet tall, which means like if he's standing next to Shaq, he's two feet taller than Shaq. Like, Shaq would have to have my three-year-old daughter on his shoulders to be, like, to be with Goliath. It's like Shaq plus Hazel equals Goliath. He's this huge nine-foot giant. Uh, he has this 125-pound armor, which would be like, like he's just carrying an English Mastiff with him everywhere. Like, he's that big that that doesn't slow him down. He has his own shield bearer that just walks before him. And Goliath, a lot of people don't know this, Goliath is described as a champion of war, and that's really important that we know that going into this story, because a champion of war was the best of the best soldier in an army. So in the Philistine army, they designated who they considered to be their greatest warrior a champion of war. And the reason they did that is because back in those days, how, how these different people groups would claim land is they would just go from, from piece to piece, and whatever is not claimed, they would kind of show up until somebody came and fought them for it. And a lot of times, you'd have like a piece of land in the middle, and two, two surrounding people groups would try to take it, and they'd, they'd battle, and whoever won got the land. A lot of times, when there was a stalemate, uh, they would send in their champion of wars. Like, both sides would send in one person, and it almost sounds like a movie, and they would battle in the middle to the death and whoever won, their side got the land. So the fact that Goliath is still alive means he's undefeated in these battles. That any battle that he went up against in the Philistine army and they sent him in, he destroyed the other person. And not only did he destroy, he destroyed the best soldier on the other battlefield. So that's the villain. The hero is David, who we don't know a whole lot about outside of the fact that he's a teenage boy who watches sheep, and he's, he's in every way underqualified to fight against a guy like Goliath. And so Goliath comes up to God's people, and he's basically knocking on the door, and he says, who will fight me for your land? And they're hearing this over and over. Nobody wants to step up to fight. And so finally in verse 32, um, here's what David says. He says, don't worry about this Philistine, David talking to King Saul. I'll go fight him. Don't be ridiculous, Saul replied. There's no way you can fight this Philistine and possibly win. You're only a boy, and he's been a man of war since his youth. But David persisted. I've been taking care of my father's sheep and goats. Like, that's David's qualification for fighting the greatest warrior of his day. It's like, it's okay. I've been watching the goats. Everything's going to be fine. 
When a lion or a bear comes to steal a lamb from the flock, I go after it with a club, and I rescue the lamb from its mouth. If the animals turn on me, I catch it by the jaw, and I club it to death. So this is David's interview with King Saul, and he's saying what qualifies me to fight this man that's at least three feet taller than me is I've been watching sheep, and they're all okay still. And what David's saying here is even though he has like this minuscule responsibility of taking care of sheep and goats, like he lays down his life for these animals. Like that's how much he's committed to this little responsibility that God has given him is, is he has put his own life on, on the line to guard his sheep, which by the way is foreshadowing what Jesus does thousands of years later for us, his sheep. The story goes on in verse 36. I have done this to both lions and bears, and I'll do it to this pagan Philistine too, for he has defied the armies of the living God. This is when you start to see the fire in David's belly. The Lord has rescued me from the claws of the lion and the bear and will rescue me from this Philistine. Mic drop. That's not actually in there, but I feel like it should because it's like this epic moment. And then Saul finally consented, and he says, all right, go ahead. And may the Lord be with you. By the way, if, if somebody ever ends a conversation that way, that means they think you're about to get destroyed. If you're talking to somebody and they say, um, may the Lord be with you. Like, that's, that's not like a message of hope. It's like, good luck. We've got nobody else stepping up to the plate. See, David was confident, not because of his skills or because of his experience. He was confident because he knew that God had his back. And he didn't, it wasn't just that God had his back so that David could go and make a huge name for himself. God had his back because David was fighting not for himself, he was fighting for God. And so David had this confidence with him, and he looked around and he saw that nobody was willing to step up to this battle before them. So he said, I'll do it because God's on our side. Like, imagine, imagine having that kind of faith that it doesn't even really matter what the obstacle is, you say, I'll do it because I'm not really alone in this venture. God's got my back. I love that because I think sometimes this story is used as like a fun teaching analogy for sports and, and different like things in culture to talk about this underdog story. And it completely belittles the magnitude that this teenage boy is the only person of all, in all of God's people, the soldiers and the generals, they're all stepping back because they know that a fight against Goliath is surely death. And the teenage guy with faith is the one that steps up and says he'll fight it. And by the way, there may be a battle going on around you that nobody's willing to fight, and God may be nudging you forward as the one to fight it, even if you feel like you're underqualified. Because the Bible's not about who's qualified to do work for God. It's, it's about who's willing to step forward to do work for God. The most important verse in this whole passage to me is verse 46, because it kind of sums up the theme of what's going on. Without this verse, we can kind of miss what David's heart is, and it says, this is David like proclaiming to Goliath, this huge man in front of him, he says, today the Lord will conquer you, and I will kill you and cut off your head, and then I will give the dead bodies of your men to the birds and the wild animals, and here's the important part, and the whole world will know that there is a God in Israel. See, David wasn't doing this for himself. David was doing this because he wanted to make God's name famous. He wanted to get the word out to all of these people groups that might want to challenge the Israelites that it doesn't matter who you send in, we've got God on our side. 
So it comes to this battle. Verse 48, as Goliath moved closer to attack, David quickly ran out to meet him. And I love that. Like, like not only was David not afraid, he ran to the giant that everyone else was running away from. Reaching into his shepherd's bag and taking out a stone, he hurled it with his sling and he hit the Philistine in the forehead. The stone sank in and Goliath stumbled and fell face down on the ground. So David triumphed over the Philistine with a sling and a stone, for he had no sword. Then David ran over and pulled Goliath's sword from its sheath. David used it to kill him and cut off his head, and he holds it up like this, like, Israelite Super Bowl trophy that he just kept with him. Like in that day, if you, if you defeated somebody, you cut off their head and you took it as like a prize that you had dominion over them. See, David realized he had so much more potential than what the world saw in him because he realized that God had empowered him to do things for God. It wasn't so that David could go out and become famous. The reason that we know of King David's legacy is because his eyes stayed on God. Like it was always about what he could do for God. And, and what's cool is this is kind of the beginning of his story. And then um, there's a, a huge chunk of the Old Testament that talks about what David did after this moment. He basically gets appointed by Saul to lead the Israelite army and to lead all of these conquests against uh, people groups that are battling against him. Um, and, and David doesn't lose because he's got God's back. In fact, 2 Samuel 6, 8, 6, it kind of wraps it up. It says, the Lord gave victory wherever he went. Like he was undefeated because it was never about David. It was all about what David could do for God. And David realized that God had given him this unbelievable gift of courage. And so he needed to use it to make God's name famous. David eventually becomes king over God's people. And, and, and that's when we really see a lot of the things that, that are talked about for David centuries later took place when he became king, a great king over God's people. It, it, what's crazy is the story starts out with this giant who's undefeated. And then, bam, David comes in, kills him, and he becomes undefeated. And he goes on to have this unbelievable legacy where God grants him unbelievable influence. He's the most powerful, influential leader in all of God's people. He is the king. Like, he is above the law. He's above the Jewish law because he can get away with, with whatever he wants. And so you read this story and you think, man, look what David was able to do when he had nothing. He was a teenage boy. And all he had was like a sling and a rock. Look what he was able to conquer with God then. Imagine what he could do now as king. But with all gifts from God, they can be used for good or for evil. Or in Bible terms, they can be used for God's glory or for our own glory. They can be used to chase God's desire or our own desires for our lives. I want to show a clip from, from Spider-Man 3 because I think it almost, it almost gives us like a modern day picture of this inward battle that David would have been facing, that we face, this temptation of deciding what we do with the things God has given us. Do we use them for God's glory or for our own glory? And so, so this is uh, Spider-Man 3, obviously, and we're kind of jumping in uh, where uh, 
Now Spider-Man is dealing with some anger and in like rage because he now knows the killer um, of his uncle, who is basically his father figure, and he's struggling to see if he, if he wants to use his power to continue to do good as Spider-Man or if he wants to dive into this anger um, and use that to propel him to use his power for his own selfish gain. And as you're watching this, I just want you to picture like this black like venom suit that kind of takes him over. Like, like to me, this is one of the, the neatest pictures, uh, visuals of like when we let rage and sin take over our lives and what happens. So just watch this clip and then we'll keep chatting. something else who's seen spider-man 3 a few of us it's there's been like seven spider-mans since then like different actors um i I actually really like this movie um because of this this inward battle this dark temptation that that from then on he kind of struggles throughout the movie where there's there's like there's scenes where he has the spider-man suit and the the venom suit and he has to choose which one uh he wants to use his power with going out into the city, and, and like, as he chooses this dark suit, like, it kind of takes him over, and, and you see, like, his character change, and you see him become more cynical and negative and, and hostile, because there's, there's these dark temptations in our lives that, that even with the things that God has given us to use for him, um, there's these natural, like, deep ingrained sinful desires that we have that the enemy wants to use to pull us to using those things that God has given us um, to do things that, that, doesn't, that don't glorify God. 
And so I want to look at another moment, the second story in, in David's, uh, where now he's king, and this is years later, and again, he's got, like, ev- God's given him everything, and now he has reign over, uh, over this kingdom, and, and he's faced with this, this tempting moment. And, and let's look at how he responds. It's in 2 Samuel, um, which is a continuation, but it's a, it's a few pages later. 2 Samuel chapter 11, and we're going to start in verse 2. 2 Samuel chapter 11, verse 2. And now he's king, and this story is taking place from his palace. Late one afternoon, after his midday rest, David got out of bed and was walking on the roof of the palace. As he looked out over the city, he noticed a woman of unusual beauty taking a bath. He sent someone to find out who she was, and he was told, She is Bathsheba, the daughter of Iliam, and the wife of Uriah the Hittite. And so David sees her, and obviously he sees her beauty, and like we know why he's calling for who she is. He's not like looking for a chess partner, right? Like he, he wants her in his palace, and he finds out that this beautiful woman... Uh, that she's, she's not single, but she's married. Now, some history here. David, growing up as a Jew, means he would have learned the Jewish law, which the Jewish law specifically would say uh, that any form of adultery um, is disobedience to God. So David, this man who the Bible describes as a man after God's own heart, has this decision to make where he sees uh, he's tempted by this beauty of this woman, but he knows that if, if he steps forward with it, that, um, that it's sin, that it's disobedience. Um, and so here's what he does in verse 4. Then David sent messengers to get her, and when she came to the palace, he slept with her. She had just completed the purification rites after having her menstrual period. Then she returned home, which in other words meant that she wasn't pregnant um, when, when he met with her. Later, when Bathsheba discovered she was pregnant... She sent David a message saying, I'm pregnant. And essentially, you're the father, because I wasn't pregnant before this. So now David's like disobedience, his sin, like it's not just going to go away. Because now he finds out he's the father. And now that's a big moment for him. Because the first time that we see David is him like making a stance for God. Like he's putting his own life on the line to fight against Goliath. And then here, he, he's like struggling with this temptation. Um, and he thinks, maybe I can get away with it. Because he's like, he's king. And the king can get away with things that the average person can't. But now that Bathsheba's pregnant, like someone's going to find out about this. And what the Jewish law at that time actually said, this is in the Old Covenant before Jesus came, is that the punishment for adultery was death. For the person that committed adultery and for the married person. Like they're both to be put to death. And so now David realized that the punishment, if people found out that he'd given into temptation and he'd slept with Bathsheba and he'd made her pregnant and he'd completely disrupted this whole family unit simply because he wanted this woman that shouldn't have been his, um, is something's got to happen. Like either he's got to die or someone else has to die. Like, there's punishment for this sin. Verse 14, it says, So the next morning David wrote a letter to Joab and gave it to Uriah, who's the the husband, to deliver. The letter instructed Joab, Station Uriah on the front lines 
where the battle is fiercest, then pull back so that he'll be killed. Doesn't this sound like a completely different guy than the first one we met? Verse 16, so Joab assigned Uriah to a spot close to the city wall where he knew the enemy's strongest men were fighting. So David basically stages a battle for the sole purpose of killing Uriah and making it look like an accident so that, so that if Uriah is killed, he can marry Bathsheba and nobody will know what happened. Verse 17, when the enemy soldiers came out to the city to fight, Uriah was killed along with several other Israelite soldiers. So we parallel these two stories, and it's like this picture of an inward battle. One time, where David, as a young boy, before God had really given him anything, chose to chase after God's desire for his life. And and then this, this second time, where God had given him everything, and he chose to give in to that dark temptation that was in his heart. He, choose, he chose his desire over God's desire. He chose his glory over God's because he knew that the power that God had given him, he could manipulate any situation and just rise above the law and rise above the consequence. And even though God had given him this unbelievable power and influence, he used it for his own glory. Because, because everything God has given us can be a tool for God or an idol for ourselves. And that's where this inward battle comes from. It can be used for God or for our own gain. With everything God has given you, it can be used for God or it can be used for selfish gain. Like your gifts, your job, your relationships, your passions, your finances, your responsibility, the people, the people that you have influence over, that can be used to make God's name famous or make your own name famous. We have this daily decision of choosing to do good for God or chase after selfishness for ourselves. And David's story is like this perfect example of what the two different outcomes look like. Think of... Um, Think of in your, in your life, like, what's the greatest, most frustrating circumstance that you're facing right now? Whether it's something at work, or it's a relationship, uh, or, or maybe it's a financial thing, or something with your family, like, something that if you just wish that God could come in and change. And think, how, how could you glorify God through that situation? Like, maybe God isn't the reason that you're in that situation, but maybe God's allowing you to be in that situation as an opportunity to grow. Like when we face moments of frustration, we either see them and approach them with joy or with irritation to God. James 1, one of my favorite passages in the entire New Testament, where James writes, it's the very beginning of his book, he says, consider it pure joy whenever you face trials and temptations because the testing of your faith produces perseverance. And perseverance must finish its work so that you may be joyful and complete, lacking nothing. So these frustrating opportunities in our lives are just that. They're opportunities. Do you view those as obstacles or as opportunities? Do you see those as an opportunity to still give give God glory? Because a lot of times when frustrating moments hit, like all this stuff just kind of goes out the window and we just want to kind of get through it and survive, but maybe that's, maybe that's the greatest moment that you could glorify God in your life. We just try to race through it, but maybe God has you exactly where he wants you to be. 
when I was a youth pastor, um, there was a middle school guy named Travis that, um, it, this was years ago, um, but when he was in sixth grade, he, would, he was diagnosed with a rare, uh, like, bone marrow deficiency that basically just depleted uh, his immune system to where set most of his seventh and eighth grade years, he couldn't even go to school because he'd get sick so easily. So almost all of his middle school years, which are like this vulnerable time in your life where he's like trying to make friends and he just wanted to play football and hang out at school with friends, like do all the things that a middle schooler would want to do, he couldn't go. He either had to stay at home and homeschool, um, almost like a shut-in in his bedroom, um, or he was at the hospital. And in this town, like, everybody found out about it, and it became this huge story where, like, newspapers would come and interview him, and, uh, and the school had, like, an assembly for him, and his family, like, sold uh, these shirts that said Tim, uh, Team T-Bone on them that all these students would wear around school, and his message, like, I, I can't get over this because it's so mature for a middle schooler, and his message was, God has me in this for a reason, and, like, I couldn't fathom that. I remember the, the final night where he finally got the bone marrow transplant that he'd been waiting and waiting and waiting for, and he was at the hospital, and I was in the room with his family, and, like, such a cool, like, emotional moment that you get to experience where they're crying, like, they've been waiting for this for years, and they, like, plugged it in, and the first words he said were, to God be the glory. And I'm standing there looking at this middle schooler thinking, I wish I had the kind of faith he has. Like, he should be the youth pastor. This kid is awesome. Because he saw his circumstances as an opportunity to bring God glory. And even though they're frustrating, and even though he was tempted, like, he, like, like most of us, I think, when we were faced, we'd be frustrated and we'd say, why God? But, but he, didn't, he didn't ask it that way. He didn't say, why would you do this to me, God? He said, how can I use this for God? And I think those are two totally different questions. I had a friend this week that um, he just found out that he got a promotion, like a raise at work, and uh, obviously he was really excited about it. And, um, and here's what I loved as, as we were talking about it. He said, you know what I'm most excited about is for the longest time my wife and I have been wanting, like we've had a number in our mind of how much we've wanted to give back to the church, like financially, and we've never been able to hit that. And I think now with this raise, we can. And like, what an awesome view of finances that he sees the resources and the gifts that God has given him as an opportunity to give back and to help more people. But in your own life, like, like what are the tools that God has given you that he wants you to use to bring him glory? Because a lot of times God gives us gifts and tools and experiences for very specific reasons to be used for him to, to build up the church or to, or to spread the name of Jesus where you are. But like we don't necessarily think of it. Like a lot of us go to work and not in a bad way, but like we go to work to provide for our families. But we don't necessarily pause and think, how can I use the influence I have here? to bring God glory. Like for some of us, it's, it's not that we're intentionally doing anything wrong. It's just not a layer of our thinking that we have. See, David, David lost sight that everything God had given him was from God for God. David lost sight of that and started to think that he could just use his power to do whatever he wanted and to get away with it. But just for a moment, ask yourself, 
Like the things in your life that God has given you, do you get more excited to use them for God or for your own gain? Like think of, we don't like to talk about money often because it makes us uncomfortable, but, but think of that. Like if you have excess in your life, like you are living below what, what you take in, is it possible that God's given that to you, not just for your own gain, but he's giving that to you to see if you'll give it back to him to help impact multiple lives that may not have what you have. What about like some of you are incredibly gifted and skilled in like very specific ways. Like the experience that you have in, in your career or your work could greatly benefit the church or greatly benefit where you are if you add that layer of thinking in. Like I've got a friend, Dean, um, who he, he lives in the Bridgewater area where I live, and he's helping us to start the West Bridgewater location. He comes here to Grace with his girlfriend. Um, Dean owns uh, one of my favorite coffee shops in the world. It's called Better Bean Coffee, and it's in downtown Bridgewater. It's right across the street from Bridgewater State's campus, and it's like an eight-minute walk from my house. Uh, and like Dean, uh, for the past several years, has managed this coffee shop, and it's been very successful. And it's clear that God has given him like the, the business mind and the skills to be able to do this really well. And so a few weeks ago, uh, the first impressions director for our West Bridgewater location, David Holmesy, approached him and said, hey, all these skills and gifts you have, what if you helped us in the cafe here at Grace? We have a cafe every week. Like, we're about to start a new church location, and we'll, we'll have a cafe. Like, what if you kind of helped us to head this up? Because you have skills that we don't have. Like, we have volunteers that are learning on the fly, but you might be able to bring a layer of thinking in. And so since then, he started to serve in that way because he recognized, maybe for the first time in his life, that it, it's very possible that God gave him those exact gifts for a time like this to help us here at Grace Church. I love stories like that because it, it's no accident that you are where you are and that God has given you the personality and the gifts that you are. And we're the kind of church that we want to help you discover what those are and how you can use those where you are. Like, here's my struggle, just to be totally honest. My inward battle, my struggle in ministry as, as a pastor that, that God has given influence over other people is I often, like what the enemy lo loves to tempt me towards is... That, I'm, uh, that I should care more about what the people I'm leading think than what God thinks. And I think that's a common temptation in ministry is sometimes I catch myself making decisions based on what would please people versus what God actually wants us to do. And, and oftentimes those are same, and oftentimes those are different. But Galatians 1.10, it's something I've had to pray over my life constantly, is do we live... For the approval of God or the approval of man, you can't live for both. But I, I know I speak for myself and a lot of other people in leadership how easy it is to be tempted by just becoming more popular, by gaining favor with people. And so I pray that I surround myself with people that will keep me accountable, that if I, if, if I ever steer my mind towards caring more about the people I'm leading and what they think than what God thinks, then I need them to check me. So we all have these inward battles. We all have these struggles. And, and the enemy, sometimes the, the opposite of good isn't evil, by the way. 
Sometimes if the enemy can't get you to do bad with what you have, sometimes he'll, let, he'll try to get you to do the next best thing, which is, which is nothing. Just be neutral. Like, stay on the sidelines. Keep quiet. Like, God may have given you these gifts, and he may not be able to tempt you to use them to do bad things with them. He may just tempt you to not use them for God at all. He may just try to mute them out. And, and I think for the enemy, that's a win because God has given us all of these tools to, to make his name famous, to build up the kingdom, to build up churches, but often we don't think of it as that. Often we don't think of it as, as these opportunities that, that God has given us. What if God placed you at that job because you're the only Christ follower there, and he's sending you in as a missionary, and your job is your job, like, that doesn't change, and you're there to provide for yourself and your family, but what if God wants you to also start thinking through the lens of a missionary? What if, what if God's put you in your town, and it's not just by random circumstance that that's where your family decided to get an apartment or buy a house, but like, what if he's put you there for a specific reason because you might be the only Christ follower on your street or in your neighborhood or, or in your classroom? Like, it's so easy for us to miss that. What if God's giving you this incredible gift that could be used to build up the church and maybe you've just never thought about it? That's what the enemy wants to do is, is to cause us to never think about it. With Bathsheba, David used his mighty reign for selfish gain. And don't be like that. Aspire to be like David who stood before Goliath fearless because he was so led by faith it didn't matter what the obstacle was. He ran towards it. Remember, what makes us special is it's not our accomplishments. It's, it's not what the world thinks we've done really well. What makes us special as Christ followers is what Christ already did for us. That's what compels us to do great things for him. Let's pray together. Lord, I thank you for the gifts that you have given us. Everybody in this room, you have blessed with different tools in their lives, with jobs, with relationships, with influence, with responsibility, with gifts and with personalities. And, and you, want, you want to use all that to make your name famous, God, that you took the time to, to create us in your own image, uniquely set apart from one another, God. If there's anybody in this room that doesn't know you, that hasn't said yes to you, I pray all they need to do is say, I say yes to God. I'm all in on him. If there's anybody that's been holding back what you've been giving them and, and maybe using it for their own desires to build up their name, to make their legacy famous rather than making your legacy famous, I pray that you shift their heart. I pray that you help them to see how they can, God. Give them a clear next step, God. I thank you that you love us enough, that you have given us tools, that you want, you want to use us to spread your glory here, God. So we thank you for this time. We lift it up to you and we pray in your name. Amen.